Anyway, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I heard that uh, the word went out when she finally got sick herself and was dying, she uh, got very upset and said, burn every book, everything I ever wrote or thought. Who was I to come up with five states? What was I thinking? But of course, people pointed out what she was doing was following her own five five stages that was storyteller and writer ed wolf i'm jeff and this is storied san francisco every week on this podcast we feature artists business owners photographers and other san franciscans talking about living working and doing their thing here it's a way to get to know your neighbors Welcome to episode 39, part 3. We've heard Ed tell stories about mass transit and some exceptional people he met when he worked at SF General Hospital. In this podcast, Ed gets more personal, sharing the story of his move to San Francisco in 1976, his immersion in the gay scene here, and later, the toll that AIDS took on the community and his personal life. Here's Ed. You said you moved here in 76? I moved here in 76. What brought, what, why, why, why San Francisco? Well, I, you know, I'd been to San Francisco in the summer of 70, 1970, and it made a mark on me. I just here for one day, but I needed to get to New York. But New York, as I said earlier, the New York of the 70s, I mean, just to go down and get your mail could be like, a big experience and it just it it got hard it was really hard and then ironically for me thank god i left because i was the first in my group to get out of new york and all my entire core group except one because that's where the virus was first they all got infected Mm. and they all died Mm. so you know i got out i was lucky and also, I never was much of a, a bar, club, bathhouse person. I could just never make it work. And I would feel so bad about it. And, um, but ironically, it's part of why I'm alive and well and here today, being able to do the work I'm doing, because I was kind of the odd one out. I've spoken about this before, but I was like, just terrible at anonymous sex. I I just didn't know how to go from zero to 60. Quick, I, I always had to go, hi, hi, <laughs> hi, who are you, how are you? And you know, for a lot of, um, uh, you know, for a lot of men especially, that's like, that's not sexy. It's like, oh, really? We're going to talk. Um, so, yeah, it just, it didn't work for me, and it felt so bad. I felt so bad because I couldn't fit in. And then, um, yeah, and then the uh, epidemic came along. And, um, you know, I remember taking the, you know, there were so many people. So many people have been kicked out by their families because they came out as gay. And then this terrible illness descended on them. And under normal circumstances, your family is the one 
catches you and helps you. But since they'd all been kicked out, um, there was no one. And thank God the city of San Francisco got it together and went, you know what? We're going to create family. We're going to create an organization that brings you food. There are going to be people who help you do your laundry. There are going to be people like me who are going to come over and go, hi, how are you today? How are you doing with all of this? So this like San Francisco model of being there for people just took off. It went around the world. And it was because they were all so disenfranchised. They, had, they didn't have anyone. So we became the family, which is hugely, hugely um, impactful. You know, I've been able to, I've been very lucky. I've been able to travel to Africa and done work there. And that idea that the community comes to your aid because your family has kicked you out is a, you know, it's a very strong and potent um, model. And we've seen it come, you know, so much of like, uh, the Red Ribbons and the AIDS Walk and the AIDS Run and the AIDS Bicycling Cycle and all of that. Like many other diseases have picked up on like, oh, this is a way to do this. But it all came out of their early AIDS epidemic when all these people were dying so horribly and there were no family members to like be there, be there for them. And then just the all of the miracles that came out of that along with all of the all of the nightmares I mean this is something I don't I haven't talked a lot about this is another thing that gets a little tricky is about what it was like to be someone who was HIV negative surrounded by a community that was HIV positive and dying and, you know, there's a whole group of us who who went through all of that and have ended up on the other side. And, um, and still at times don't really know, like, how to make sense of that. Because of all the illegalities around suicide, and someday, I don't know how anyone can ever do this, maybe when a self deliverance becomes legal somebody needs to do this story of all of us who over and over got it together to help our brothers leave when there was nothing that could be done and you were finally finished We needed to help people. And it's very painful that we can't really talk about it because of how illegal it is. My One of my very dearest friends used to go to something called the Healing Circle that would occur every Thursday night in downtown San Francisco. And people would come together. So during the epidemic, there's no treatments. If you have AIDS, you're going to die, and it's going to be a terrible death. And my friend Bob went, and um, 
he came home one night, I could tell he had like something really big had happened. We were living together. I said, what is it? He went, oh my God, I was, he had something called microsporidium, which we used to call the diarrhea of death. You just literally just shit yourself to death and he had it and he was just getting thinner and thinner and he was so uncomfortable and so unhappy and he had shared about it in the circle. And this man came over to him at the end of the circle and said, here, here's my card. If you ever need any help, call us. And Bob said, what is this? And what it turned out to be was a doctor and a nurse who would come to your house and help you cross over. And the way they did it was they wore ski masks. So they would come to the house, keep their anonymity. They knew what they were doing. They would inject you or whatever needed to happen. Then they would leave. So I was like, oh my God, Bob, I can't even imagine what that would what that would be like. And he said, I know, I know, but the I the idea of it is just such a comfort to know that. So what it did for us was it opened up the conversation about if he wanted to leave before his body actually stopped, how we would go about that. So one of the other things about this thing with the ski mask is that it made such an impression on me. And I was working at the hospital and Bob was dying and it was just so bad. I needed to do something creative. So I thought, because I like to write, tell and write stories. So I don't have the time to write stories, but you know I have the time to write a poem. So I went in and I wrote a poem called The Ski Mask. And it was about imagining two men in ski masks coming into your home, passing by the door that I was in, because I was HIV negative, going into Bob's room and setting him free. It was something like that. So the next morning we were sitting at the table and I went, God, you know what I did? I wrote a poem about what you told me last night about the ski mask. And he went, really? Well, read it to me. So I read it to him. He went, Ed, that's an incredible poem. You should send it out somewhere. So I sent it to Christopher Street Magazine, which was the big like gay magazine of the time and they actually printed it and they sent me ten dollars it's the <laughs> first piece of writing i ever sold <laughs> the ski mask so i ended up writing lots about that time living with him it was called one life one death when elizabeth kubler ross came, you know, she rose to prominence during the AIDS epidemic here in the United States. She kind of brought the hospice movement here 
and this idea that people could just finally stop taking treatment and go home and be with trained people who could just let you go. And so she was, um, she was just such a powerhouse. So she was doing workshops all over the country for people who were working and with people with AIDS. So I signed up for one in downtown San Francisco. So I went to this workshop and um, she had trained a bunch of people about how to do this technique that she did. So I went into this uh, training. It's a great big room <clears throat> and there was a, um, I was running late. So there was already a circle of men sitting on the floor and in the middle of it was a mattress. And the um, facilitator was trying to explain, she was talking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages. So it's like, first you get angry, then you bargain, then you're in denial, then there's something else, and then there's acceptance. And she was explaining that. But how it all begins with anger. Anger. So I am someone who, I guess maybe because of my size and my temperament, I don't walk through the world being angry. I, you know, I'm six foot six, 270. I could be a scary person being like furious. So I tend to play it down. <laughs> so, so, so then she goes like, well, we need a volunteer. Who'd be willing to go first? And unfortunately, I was like, I was having eye contact with her. And she went, would, would you like to? And I was like, no, 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 come on. Come on up here. It's nothing. So I was like, okay. So the circle is made up primarily many people that I know work at the hospital, Shanti, clients, mostly men with AIDS. So I come up onto the blank, onto the, onto the mattress, and she said, she pulls out this telephone book. And she puts it down on the mattress, and then she pulls out a pair of little gardening gloves. She goes, here, put these on. And then she pulls out a piece of rubber hose, about three feet long. So I'm, like, I'm so self-conscious, like, what is happening? She said, it's very simple. I just want you to take this hose, take this piece of hose, and hit the telephone book. I was like, what? <laughs> Please, I don't, does anybody, of course, nobody wants to do it. <laughs> so she said, I said, well, what will I do? She just said, just hit the telephone book with the hose and just say no. I said, okay. No. 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 No, and oh my God, I, you know, I still don't really even know exactly what happened. I just know, like, when I became aware again of my body, like, I was crying. I had, like, snot and phlegm coming out of my nose. I was so, I was just so 
fucking furious about all of it. It was just all coming out, and I was talking and screaming and crying. <laughs> and, I, and then I'm, I said something, and she went, and she was right there, the facilitator was right there, and she said, what? What did you just say? And I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. And she went, you're not sorry about what? And I said, I'm not sorry that I am not a person with AIDS. So she went, stop, stop. And she leaned over and she said, Ed, I want you to go around. Every person in this circle and tell them that. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can. I don't know. She said, do it. This will be so good. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for them. And so I got off the mattress, and I just went around to every single person, and I went, I am not sorry that I am not a person with AIDS. And, of course, they were all like, we don't, uh, we, we're just so glad, you know. We're so, but I had been such a burden, right? There had been times earlier on where I would go on these retreats with people, people with AIDS, and it was just easier because well, you'd sit in a hot tub or sit somewhere and, you know, smoke pot in a circle, and everyone would tell their story of being diagnosed. And early on, a couple times, I just went, it's just going to be easier to just go, oh, I found out when I, you know, I just didn't know what to, I just, the people have said, oh, oh, well, Ed, that's survivor guilt. And I said, you know what, it's much more, it's much more complicated than that. The closest I ever got to it was what I call survivor dread. Like, because people forget from 1981 to 1995, so that's 14 years of not being able to help anyone, mostly what we were doing was taking care of, of people who were dying. I mean, 14 years, you just think like Donald Trump, we're on day 605, I'm keeping track of the days. So we're on day 605 and it's terrible. Yes, it's terrible and what he's doing is terrible, but just imagine 14 years of your lovers, friends, colleagues, comrades, everyone dying, and in many cases dying a terrible death, and nothing that you could do. It was just such a feeling of like, how are you ever gonna like walk away? I used to wonder like, when do I walk away? How do I ever walk away from this? And then the treatments. Thank God for ACT UP. And all of that like furious, creative activism. 
forcing them to speed up these medications. And that's another thread to pull forward. Act up. Do something. Pull it forward. Go into action. They changed the, the world in terms of uh, access to medications and how quickly the clinical trial... They, they changed it all, and they were mostly a handful of men and women with AIDS. I mean, that is such a profound, profound story. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald, a.k.a. Joe Big Ale. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Please follow Story San Francisco on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website, which has all the episodes and photos of the storytellers, is storiedsf.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. If you have comments and suggestions, email us at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Check back next week to hear from Zam Zam bartender Kundan Baidwan.